This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. The Property Show on BFM 89.9, the business station. Good morning. You're listening to The Property Show on The Morning Run, and I'm Philip C. We're going to do a deep dive on REITs, short for Real Estate Investment Trust. And to help us understand how the industry has been evolving over the course of the pandemic, we speak to Datuk Stuart Lebroy, Chairman of Alpha REIT Managers. Now, he is no stranger, as he's a trailblazer in the REIT industry, having led the first country's REIT. Welcome to The Property Show. How has the pandemic affected REITs relative to the overall property sector? Well, if you look at the data, I think the data speaks for itself. The REITs have actually been phenomenally resilient over the whole pandemic period. The, the managers uh, pivoted very quickly to address the, the, the impending crisis. They managed their tenants very well. Their income in certain sectors were impacted, but they, uh, they rode it through very, very well, through being very proactive. Uh, um, if you look at the, the stock prices of the REITs, they came off their highs, but they haven't really been, uh, been impacted that badly. Some have held up very well. I mean, some stocks have actually risen in value. We've seen the stocks like uh, Atrium. I think it's put on about 20% in capital value since the start of the pandemic, primarily through acquisitions and, and large portfolio performance. Access REIT has managed to maintain its performance throughout the pandemic without too much of a dip. Other sectors have been holding up well. I mean, uh, KLCC, they've done quite well because I think they're long leases. You must understand the structure of, of REITs, uh, Philip, because they basically have long leases attached to them. So, you know, they're, they're, the tenants are locked in and they have to, uh, to perform irrespective of the business environment. They've signed long leases and they're liable for, for payment. And many of them have got deep pockets and they can ride it through. If you take uh, uh, shopping malls like the Pavilion, all their clients are like five-star, top-of-the-end uh, uh, tenants. And they really want that location. They refuse, they will not give it up easily because their future business depends on it. So they'll ride this through as a bad patch, but they will still stay and keep paying rent. So I think they've all managed to, to, to perform Pretty well, pretty impressive, in fact. And I think the the overall effect of their pricing in the market, despite the fact that there some some stocks dividends did fall quite dramatically, uh, but I think overall the market still has great faith in the ability of that of the managers of the REITs to pull out you know, to pull out when the thing starts to turn. And I think the fourth quarter you're going to see a big bounce. Already we're getting reports mm. that shopping malls are filling up. The only sector that will probably have. Uh, have a rougher time would be the office sector, in my opinion. That's not going to be an easy one to, to address in the long term. But I want to turn to your point about the fact that there's more quality in the REIT asset, but you also made the point that underpinning the REITs are long-term contracts and relationships. Do you think the pandemic has forced uh, managers and uh, tenants to relook at the relationship as the pandemic extends itself? It all depends on, I think you have to look at the type of asset classes, like for instance, the for the uh, logistics sector, no change. They, they had, had a bit of a boom, in fact, during the pandemic. E-commerce was going, doing gangbusters, really, doing very, very well. And they've never been busier. I mean, all of you sort of pivoted to buying online, I think, because you couldn't go to your favorite shopping. But having said that, I think they you know the, um, the overall uh, relationships that they've had with their tenants have been very good. I think they do pride themselves on keeping that relationship going. And uh, there's been uh, incidences where certain REITs, I mean, especially on the mall sector, have given discounts to uh, mm-hmm. tie their tenants through. It's not the big ones, really. It's the smaller ones, you know. You know, when you go to a shopping mall, there'll be the small little uh, 
little kiosks, you know, and I think they did cut them a lot of slack to help them. And in turn, took a slight dip on their income. But what comes out at the end of the day is going to be a much more robust relationship, a much more dynamic uh, organization running REITs. But don't forget, when this happened, what REITs had to do, they had to immediately go back and look at their operating costs. And as a result, it was put under a microscope. They really looked at their costs very, very closely. Every, every cent was analyzed. Every dollar they spent on energy was looked at. Are they running their... They just questioned everything they had in the business. They really worked very hard to reduce the operating costs. And when that happens, when things go, when things get back to normal, guess what? Their bottom line is going to really look a lot more impressive. And they're going to do a lot better in terms of their, their income and the distribution to the unit holders. So what strategies do REIT managers take to manage and contain costs that perhaps normal property developers can't? Well, and not, not, I mean, basically, REIT managers are the best asset managers in the market because they, they're not just managing a building or looking after the lifts. There's a whole dynamic there, managing tenants, tenant relationships. It's far more complex when you talk about shopping malls because you have to run promotions. You have to do all kinds of uh, you know, uh, things to make the, the, uh, the tenants happy and drive traffic to their, their, their businesses. It's a skill set that not everyone has. And so the malls themselves have some pretty impressive people running it. And they, they react to market forces very quickly. And they're on top of everything very quickly. And, and I think they do a very, very good job, Philip. So, you know, based on that, I can see that, you know, when things come back to normal, the malls are going to show a much, much more interesting return on their, on their income than they had before. Yeah, I think they're really examining all their costs and they're trying to economize. You frame, I think, quality, I think, into three kind of buckets. One where being just resilient and going gangbusters, which is the logistics side, doing incredibly well, thriving, in fact. Then you have the second pillar where it's like the shopping malls where throughout tough times, but if you put the right investments in, you're going to ride it through and make it work. But there's a third part, which is the structural side, which is the corporate offices, where perhaps yeah. we don't quite see the end of the rainbow at the moment. You know, for those three managers to sit into the third bucket, what strategies would they have to take? Would they have to look at their portfolios again? You know, or would they have to yes. cut their losses? You know, not, I mean, the, the office market is going to disappear tomorrow. I think there's a flight to quality. And I think uh, office REITs looking at their portfolios should start seriously looking at um, uh, refreshing them. You know, I had a policy when I was running Access before. We, we used to call it culling the herd. You know, your your worst performing assets, you then disposed of and replaced them with better performing assets. Because when, when assets start to level off uh, and they don't give you any more incremental incremental returns, it's time to dispose them and go to something that will give you a longer a longer benefit in terms of capital growth and in terms of rental growth. So they have to start looking at disposing. We have a terrible habit in this country of hanging on to what we bought. You know, it's all this romanticization of oh, my first my first asset, I can't sell it, it's my headquarters, you know, I've got to keep it. And they, they tend to hang on to assets unnecessarily. We must learn how to be quite brutal about these things and be very impassionate about it. And just, just, you know, sell the ones that are not performing, buy better ones. There's a lot of very new buildings coming on the market. Look at TRX, those buildings are phenomenally well constructed and extremely on the right end of, uh, of the green cycle. If you see what's happening in terms of repositioning portfolios. I think that's going to be a strategy that a lot of REITs have to look at. Not so much the shopping malls, those are very big, yeah. you know, big anchored assets. You can't really flip them and go and buy something else. I mean, something like the pavilion, is, you can't replace it. Mm. And we talk about quality assets. I mean, if you look at the, the real estates that's inside the Malaysian REITs, 
all the crown jewels are there. We've got the Twin Towers, we've got Pavilion, we've got Sunway uh, Pyramid, we've got uh, Monotama, you know, we've got all these big shopping malls that really are quite incredible. So, you know, the, the at the end of the day, um, these are irreplaceable assets. And, and those offices that actually are linked with these kind of assets also do quite well because they give the whole experience mm. for people who are actually going to work there, they have places to to have lunch or want to do a bit of shopping before they go home. I guess the, the question in my mind is, if you look at the real landscape here, the first concern I have is concentration risk. You know, you find many REITs that are kind of set in one specific category or subsector, right? Do you believe that there is value in diversification or do you think that there is so much specialization required in REITs operations that it's better just stick and double down in specific areas? I think it's a double-edged sword because you know if you look at diversification it can come and bite you technically speaking once you have several different types of asset classes if two are doing well and three doing three are doing badly okay the bad ones are dragging down the good ones you know what i mean this is why conglomerates in malaysia never worked okay when you put all of them together high performing parts of the conglomerate were subsidizing the poorer performing parts of the conglomerate yeah. mm-hmm. and when they break them up then you can truly see the performance of each each particular uh, business uh, conglomerates basically mask over inefficiencies very, very well. So same thing with REITs. You know, if you have a mixed portfolio, if your if you have offices in there, for instance, and, and shopping malls and hotels, and uh, one does well and other two do badly, you're going to be impacted. Single asset uh, REITs tend to work better because you can deal with the issues, and if you know that the business is going to continue after a bump, like we've had in the pandemic, we we shift our, our strategies and, and get back to business. But it gives you a very singular management style where you specialize. Now, you think it's easy being a manager, running an industrial portfolio together with a hotel portfolio <laughs> and a shopping mall portfolio. That doesn't really work in real life. Mm. You're not a specialist in any of these sectors and you don't do a good job. How do you allocate capital? Okay, yeah. the, all your, It's your children, you know, all hungry for capital. Where do you put your money? Because when you have a single asset, you know exactly where the market's heading. You know how to allocate capital efficiently. So but clarity. A portfolio is a nightmare. Yeah, really so very difficult. Clarity of purpose, ability to drive synergies, critical for and, that. And investors like that because they don't like having muddled portfolios because they find it difficult to see, you know, which is performing well, which is not performing well. Because they always get bucketed into one, here's your DPU for the year, it's down this year. And there's, they give you some analysis, but you really can't see the long-term uh, benefits of belonging to a mixed mixed asset class like that. I'm a great believer in, in being very singular in what you what you mm. do in REITs and grow that that portfolio out as big as you can. So, so assuming you are very clear with the mandate in your experience in in this current environment, how challenging is it to add yield equitative assets in this COVID environment? Well, I think it's easy to add assets, and you have to be very careful what you add because all assets can be yield equitative depending on pricing and whether they occupy it or not. Now, I think that uh, a lot of developers that were holding on to assets are willing to part with them at much lower prices at the moment, because don't forget, all developers have had a really, really rough ride this last two years, because A, their sales are down, their overheads are up, their cash flows tightened up, they've not been able to collect money from the market, their deliveries have been slowing down. So they, their entire business model has been quite badly impacted. And if they're holding on to assets in the balance sheet, they're quite prepared to let them go. Others who have actually been holding investment type properties for long periods of time will probably also be prepared to cash out and move on to something else. 
So I think there's a lot of opportunity in this market. Normally, down cycles is when you get out there and you start buying. Yeah. I mean, just to give you an example, Dutchie um, Francis Yo came up with an announcement. Says, I'm buying hotels, and I said, good on you, because hotel prices have been lower. Okay, and he knows the hotel market because he knows understands the market extremely well, and he's in the six star, five star category. You know, he's not fighting with a lot of people there. He's catering to the rich and famous, and he knows that he picks up some really good assets now. He can probably inject it into his his hotel reap and do tremendously well. It's exactly what he did when he launched uh, Starhill. I mean, they bought Lot Ten and they bought uh, you know all the hotels there for a, for a very very low price. You know, Starhill Mall and all that was bought at a very very low price and they injected it for a huge huge upside. Yeah, I get. I guess someone you know who has really been able to build that war chest, they could have the cash balance to go and invest and set up a new focused REIT that does other areas where there's buying opportunity at the moment. The Securities Commission have allowed REITs to start developing on their own. They actually can put part of their balance sheet to build new assets. And if your balance sheet is big enough, the assets can be quite substantial. Um, because when you build something on your own, your your yields tend to be much better than trying to buy it off the market because you're giving the profit to the developer. Here, when you become the developer right. yourself, you get both both margins locked in. So your returns on your investment are much better than if you bought open market. Yields can be almost in double-digit territory. And we'll discuss more about how REITs will be able to expand and the financing regime. We'll be back with more after these messages. Stay with us, BFM 89.9. Welcome back. You're tuned in to The Property Show on The Morning Run. And with me today is Datuk Stewart-Lebroy, Chairman of Alpha REIT Managers, to have a conversation about REITs. Now, Datuk Stewart, we talked about just now that this is an opportune time to proceed to acquire and buy assets. But really, the portfolios for many of our REIT managers here are domestic and local. Why is it so hard to go overseas? Well, I think you're competing with all the big boys. Don't forget, globally, you're having to, to deal with people like Brookfields and people like that. But don't forget that a lot of Malaysian companies have a lot of global assets. Uh, if you think about it, there's opportunities to look at what other, other Malaysian companies are actually invested overseas and see if that, that can be looked at. And then you get get an introduction into, into looking. I think we've just become a bit too comfortable, okay, as as, uh, as as an organization. We need to be a little bit more aggressive in the way we actually go offshore and manage the process because it's very complicated buying offshore. There's a lot of tax issues that you've got to deal with. There's a lot of uh, uh, work to be done. I mean, uh, going back in time, uh, we when I was in Axis, we had a crack at trying to do a global read. And uh, it was called the... Um, access uh, global Islamic REIT, and it was industrial. And we had assets from Japan, nothing in Malaysia, assets from Japan, Hong Kong, and Australia. We were about to list, we had tremendous traction in the market, and because half our portfolio is in Japan, we went to market a few days before the earthquake and the oh, tsunami no. event, and we had to pull the, pull the IPO. Told me a lot about how you go over, offshore and do these deals, and they can be done. Yeah, it can be done and there are many opportunities. And, and there was an earlier point you made, the importance of that you have the balance sheet to be able to do this. And unfortunately, not many managers do have that balance sheet to drive that. So the question really is, securing the necessary funding from banks, is that difficult now in these environments? And uh, does the SC provide any support in basically changing the borrowing ceiling? Two things. REITs very rarely borrow from banks, mm-hmm. okay? Just to let you know. Because banks are fixed term loans, they're difficult because the, when the REIT borrows, it does not want to borrow on the basis of paying principal and interest. It's an interest only regime. So banks have been doing that, but they, the rumblings that that might be discontinued. 
So most suites actually go towards a bond structure, sukuks. Mm. They'll take a seven-year sukuk, and they have a much larger program. So when the sukuks retire, they, they basically issue new sukuks to cover the old sukuks. So, I mean, they, 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 they basically roll over their capital. They have far more innovative ways of funding REITs today. There's either through equity or debt. You go back to your shareholders uh, and, and raise capital, or you go to the market and raise bonds. Um, but you must have a decent portfolio to pledge for those bonds. And and we talk about this decent portfolio to pledge. Uh, in the past, you said, right, that the government should get into the REIT space, you know, citing that they would be really a classic AAA tenant. Do you still hold that view? Well, you know, I wrote an article um, four or five years ago about the Putrajaya REIT, yep. which I still think is very, very valid. It's an office REIT. Yes, granted, it's not the favorite asset class, but your, your tenant is the government of Malaysia. It all depends, and it's, it's basically built on a BOT, I think, with Putrajaya Holdings. They built it, and they basically leased it to the government for 25 years, and then transferred the assets back to the government at the end of it. And it's being maintained by um, a consortium of odd managers. I think it's JKR and some other government agencies are managing the portfolio. Now, you know, the government is, is always short, is short of money right now, surely. We all know that you know, our, budget, our deficits have been quite badly impacted by the, by the COVID situation. They could actually list all their assets in Putrajaya in one humongous Islamic REIT, get good traction. The government signed 25-year leases. You have a good long uh, whale, they call it, you know, the weighted lease expiry period, mm. and very stable. You get good traction from, from institutional investors looking for long-term income. But it's the political will to do something like this. It's a nightmare navigating it. <laughs> it's, it's common sense to do it. I mean, we tried to do the airport REIT, remember, I think, uh, when the last government was in power, they talked about doing an airport read, and I said, that's never going to fly. You know, that's going to sink like a lead balloon because it doesn't work because the land's not, land's government owned. It's, there's no real clarity as to ownership and things like that. And it's, it's a difficult asset to manage. It requires specialist skills and everything else. So that didn't happen. Then they looked at hospital reads, floating all the government hospitals. Again, anyone wants to manage that, the liabilities are enormous, okay, because of liability issues. You know, if we suddenly run out of oxygen, people die, the manager is going to get sued. So, I mean, it, it's, it's, it's a liability. But the Putrajari is a fairly benign asset class. They're very well-designed buildings. Yes. Been to Putrajari. Um, and they're beautiful buildings, um, very good infrastructure. It's got everything going for it, except that um, it's not been monetized. And I think it can be. And the government can retain 50% of the units in the week if they want to. You know what I mean? So, I mean, they don't really lose ownership. Uh, they can float the balance to institutional investors. It'll be in the billions. So it'd be a huge week. The government can retain whatever it needs to retain in the, in the portfolio and float the balance. But the thing is that the entire portfolio will come under professional management with experts running it. And the maintenance and the delivery of those, those government buildings will be, you know, of international standard. I want to shift our attention now from government. How do we use REITs to help us solve some of the country's biggest socioeconomic challenges? And the first in my mind is affordable housing, right? Do you think REITs are the right vehicle or could be the right vehicle to support and drive affordable housing solutions and challenges? Philip, this is what we call, you know, it's a really difficult uh, subject to tackle because it's uh, very emotive. Uh, I mean, if you look at the stats, we spend billions of dollars on public housing with very little to show for it. The thing is, you know, the B40s, I always said once, you know, trying to get the, the B40s to buy a house. Affordable housing, I said, was, was basically an oxymoron. How do you sell a house to someone with no money? That's the first question. 
um, we found out, in fact, I sit on a, on a, on a think tank with uh, Tansri Vincent Tan. He's very, very passionate about trying to get home ownership to the poorer people in this country. And he set up the, the Affordable Housing Foundation, Better Malaysia Foundation, BMF. And they've set up an affordable housing uh, unit in there. And he's looking at actually trying to get the banks to give longer term loans, where, in fact, if you look at the rent they're paying now, would equal the installments on the, on the building. So, um, again, it's a question of land prices. It's a question of delivery to market. And I think it requires a, a monumental effort on behalf of the developers and the government to come together. Because you see, when new developments, a lot of costs are front-ended. Building plan approvals, you know, conversion costs, everything are front-ended. There's no money left to develop it. By the time you paid everything to the, to the local authorities, there's, the cash flow has been severely impacted. So if you really want these things to work, you should actually back-end them. And then you pay all these things upon CF. So the money can be used to build the assets out and get the sales in. So it's possible to do that. That's one approach I think that the, uh, the Affordable, Foundation, Affordable Housing Foundation is working on. And it looks quite promising. REITs can come into play if you look at private REITs and only on a rental model, not ownership model. Mm. This build to own and you know rent to own schemes have never really worked out because I, don't, I can't understand the mathematics myself. It's tough to get, get your handle around that. So I think if you look at it from that perspective, a private REIT unlisted can work government uh, government uh, sponsored and getting all the um, institutional investors to take part in it because the yields would be much lower they'd be yep. equivalent to government bonds but basically the government of Malaysia is going to be the master lessee okay the REIT will run it they collect the rent they collect the government will pay the rent and then they'll arrange for collection of rent from the from the tenants or they can pass that task on to the, the managers themselves as you reflect on the maturity and the movement of this industry, because you are really a trailblazer, you know, you led the country's first REIT in 2005. Where do you see the REIT industry in 10 years' time? What is its shape and size by 2030? It'll be largely shaped by the way technology is going to change in the next 10 years. And believe me, the speed of change is going to take us all by surprise. So I think that managers have got to be very very tuned to trends in the market and get those trends done. Yes, you become a big part of portfolio management, attracting foreign investors. You need to have that thing very much in center stage for your portfolios in order to attract them. There's a lot of ESG investments going on. So you want to attract capital, you better be getting your act together. Uh, way buildings are designed will change because work from home has completely revolutionized uh, thinking of how offices can operate. Um, I know last year we didn't know what Zoom was. Today, everyone's got a Zoom account. Uh, we talk to our families on Zoom, whether WhatsApp videos or whatever it is. Technology has enabled us to do a lot of things online and very efficiently. Mm. So, you know, offices are going to be redefined by uh, collaborative centers rather than so sort of come and sit your, sit your bottom down in this chair and work for eight hours and go home. Um, they become places where people come together for collaboration. They go home and then do work. So it's going to be the, the way it's being presented will have to change. And this is going to happen quite quickly in the next four or five years. That's all the time we have for today's property show. I've been speaking to Datuk Stuart Lebroy, Chairman of Alphari Managers. I'm Philip C, signing off for The Morning Run, BFM 89.9. The Property Show on BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.